As entrepreneurs, we see the world differently. In a world that not only tolerates but promotes mediocrity, we unreasonably demand more. Giving you access to the world's most successful entrepreneurs and thought leaders, this podcast uncovers the untold truths of what it really takes to build a multi-million dollar business while optimizing your personal performance in every area of your life. I'm Jack DeLosa. Let's get to work. We are doing a live conversation this morning. Uh, I wanted to reach out to you guys uh, and have a conversation about the changes and the challenges that we're experiencing as human beings at the moment, that we're experiencing as a species at the moment, uh, and that we're probably experiencing as business owners at the moment. Uh, With all of the media and mass hysteria that surround our current challenges that are very real challenges, uh, it can be difficult at times to see through that and to look at what's really going on and to digest, understand the context and digest what does it mean for me? How do I best navigate it? Uh, Because I do want it to be quite comprehensive. This is my opportunity uh, to talk to you guys about lessons learned over the last 15 years in navigating uh, some extreme challenges in my own life and my own businesses, um, but also to draw on a lot of the research that I've been doing over the past week into the issues at hand, uh, how we can navigate it as people addressing a health issue, how we can navigate it as business owners navigating the challenging economic environment and ultimately how we can navigate it as a society of human beings that need to come together throughout these periods. The the, the first thing that I think needs to be said about the COVID-19 uh, crisis of challenge that we're faced with at the moment is that it is first and foremost a health issue, particularly uh, for those with pre-existing health conditions the elderly uh, and the frail, right? It, it is a health risk and it is a health, health issue uh, for those people that are particularly vulnerable. It is like as a society, the health and the well-being of those who are most vulnerable needs to be our primary concern. Fortunately, uh, for the vast majority of the population, COVID-19 will represent uh, probably something slightly more severe than the flu. It might even be something uh, um, very similar to the flu and not more severe than the flu. And I'll, I'll talk to that as we go through uh, this particular conversation. Beyond the health crisis, people are rightly concerned about uh, the business implications, the personal implications. How do I approach this as a human being? How do I approach this personally? And the societal implications, right? What does this mean for us as a society? And what does this mean uh, for us culturally? And so uh, for the purpose of this discussion, I wanna talk to each of those four considerations as I see them. The health considerations, the business considerations and what we need to do as business people, uh, the personal considerations, how we can navigate this from a place of being centered and grounded and approaching challenges intelligently and drawing on some of my consciousness work I've been doing over the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, And then lastly, the societal considerations. What do I think this means for us as a society? And so um, I'll start with the health considerations. Now guys, I talk to the health considerations. Uh, I'm not a health expert, right? However, I do want to uh, quickly address and summarize my findings from Uh, 
my research over the last week, primarily because when you have something new and unknown and with, with a little bit of fear attached to it and the media get hold of it, they are almost incentivized to blow it out of proportion. And it can be incredibly challenging to see through it, get to the truth, get to the heart of the issue. You know, the ability to conduct independent research is important during periods like this. Statistical analysis is incredibly important during periods like this because the media will get the worst of the worst case scenarios by some expert somewhere, apply the worst of the worst ratios by some expert somewhere, put them together, come up with these huge numbers that are already out of date by the time they've been printed because they've already been, we've globally have already put in measures to mitigate these worst case scenarios. And then they splash around huge numbers on the front page of newspapers, on the front page of websites, and, and it can cause this sort of hysteria. And so I, I, I'm gonna approach the health conversation, uh, not from a position of being a health expert, but from a position of uh, somebody that is informed, somebody that's done the research, somebody that understands the, stati the statistical analysis, particularly of crisis situations like this, uh, to, help, to help give you some context around uh, some issues that might be really helpful for you. Uh, the first thing that I think we need to do in understanding the health uh, crisis and challenge is to understand uh, the degree of it, right? How big it is or how small it is, right? Right now with COVID-19, there are 168,000 cases, 168,866 cases. Uh, tragically, we've had 6,492 deaths. Uh, this means that our current recorded and reported mortality rate for COVID-19 is 3.8%. And so I think we need to be sensitive to that and, and acknowledge that that is, that is tragic. Losing one life to any crises is one life too many, right? And I think that sometimes when we talk about the macro and the global and statistics and all that sort of stuff, uh, we can almost lose sight of the fact that there are real human beings that are being really affected by this. Uh, and, and for them, the health uh, concerns and the consequences are absolutely pinnacle and are absolutely at the top uh, of their priorities. Um, so we've currently got a mortality rate of 3.8%. The mortality rate will decrease uh, as more testing is done because more widespread testing means more mild cases are included in the overall account. What I mean by that is this, that 3.8% mortality rate that we're seeing at the moment is essentially 6,492 uh, divided by 168,866. So this denominator number, this total cases number has, has a huge influence on the percentage uh, of the perceived mortality rate, right? What happens at the beginning of these types of crises is um, the cases that get detected and recorded are the most severe cases because in the absence of huge resources around testing and testing at scale and in the absence in the beginning around, uh, you know, uh, sort of mass understanding of what's going on, what you get is the cases that go into hospital. You get the cases that are most severe, right? Uh, around 80% of COVID-19 cases are considered mild. 
Yet in the beginning of an outbreak like this, uh, the cases that are reported are those with the most severe symptoms because it's the cases that ultimately go to hospital that are detected and recorded. Um, what's really pertinent to understand is that in the regions where more rigorous testing is apparent, uh, meaning more moderate cases are detected, the mortality rate has been found to be significantly lower. South Korea is perhaps the best example of this. South Korea had an outbreak of uh, MERS in uh, 2015, which is the Middle Eastern uh, Respiratory Syndrome, and they dealt with it terribly. And so they learned from it. And, and they, they, they had some policy changes and they developed uh, crises plans and they did all of this sort of stuff so that next time it happened, they would be more prepared. And so South Korea have been, uh, have been, if not the, one of the most rigorous testing regimes in the world. And meaning they detect more of the mild cases. In South Korea, the mortality rate is 0.9%, which is obviously significantly less than the global perceived mortality rate, current recorded mortality rate of 3.8%, right? And so the more testing that happens, the more moderate cases are included in the denominator number and the mortality rate decreases significantly. If we look at this in contrast and to get some perspective, if we look at the flu, for example, so each year, one billion people get the flu. From those 1 billion people, uh, by the way, 45 million people in the States each year get the flu. 45 million in the States get the flu each year. Uh, from those billion people, uh, the death rate each year is uh, anywhere from 291,000 to 646,000, which gives the flu a mortality rate of anything from 0.3 to about 0.65%, right? Now, uh, because COVID-19 is new and it's shrouded in mystery and it, it can really play on people's fears. It tends to capture, understandably, it tends to capture the imagination and the attention of people and particularly the media. And it gives the media something to really talk about. Now, am I saying that COVID-19 is not a health issue? No, I am not. It absolutely is a health issue. Am I saying that we shouldn't take precautions and that we shouldn't manage it as a severe and urgent health issue? No, I'm not. We need to manage this as a severe and urgent health crisis, right? What I am saying is that in order to navigate challenge intelligently, you must first know and understand what you're dealing with and be coming from a place of being informed, not from a place of mass hysteria and fear. And so what I'm doing with these numbers is trying to provide some context to, to the lack of scale that exists around COVID-19 uh, right now. The New York governor, Andrew Cuomo, said in a press briefing, most people who get infected won't even know they have it. The facts do not merit the level of anxiety that we're seeing, which is also consistent with a text message I received a few weeks ago. One of my uh, very close and dearest family members uh, has been with um, Ambulance Victoria for, I don't know, probably about 10 to 15 years now. He's now in senior management. And so he's been positioned at uh, Melbourne Tullamarine Airport for 
uh, I think what's probably been about four to six weeks, uh, primarily uh, on you know the the case of COVID nineteen, and he sent my family and I a text, um, you know, probably uh, two weeks ago, saying it's real, it's a health issue, particularly for those with pre existing health conditions, uh, particularly for those who are elderly, particularly for those who are frail, but for the vast majority of people, if you don't have existing diseases, um, if you're not elderly, you're not already vulnerable. Uh, it, it doesn't represent anything more than the flu. He said, you might have it right now and not be aware of it and you'll get over it like any other flu. And so, again, that's not to say that this isn't a significant challenge that needs very to be addressed very rigorously and very quickly. It is to say that as uh, individuals, fortunately, uh, for the vast majority of the population, COVID-19 will represent uh, you know, something similar to the flu uh, maybe not even as severe as the flu from a health perspective. I want to talk from a business perspective because um, for the vast majority that aren't vulnerable from a health perspective, um, it's not the virus we have to fear, it's the fear we have to fear. It's the mass hysteria we have to fear. It's the... Uh, sensationalization that we have to fear. It's the media catastrophizing. It's the global psychology and global consciousness that we need to do our best to manage and to lead and to be examples of. And so I want to talk about the economic impacts and, and how to navigate this if you are a business owner or you're in a business that's affected, uh, how you can navigate uh, this challenging period. I'll then talk about the personal uh, um, strategies to, to move through this as a, as a person and as a human being and then I'll finish with the societal impacts and what I think this means for us as a society and a culture at large. Um, guys, as SME high growth businesses, we will always face challenges, right? Whether it's COVID-19, whether it's a global financial crisis, whether it's a stuff up on the back of our own wrongdoing, whether it's a huge competitor coming into the market, as SME, high growth businesses, we will always face significant challenge. This is part of the gig, right? How we choose to approach and address those challenges is completely up to us. To give you guys some context and to draw from my personal experience, one of my biggest, probably the biggest challenge of my life, and particularly the biggest challenge of my career, came in 2016. Now I've spoken about this uh, period on videos and different mediums and interviews and stuff before, uh, so I'm not gonna go too deeply into it, I wanna more focus on the lessons around it, but essentially I started Entourage in 2010, we grew 100% uh, year on year to 2015. Uh, we went from a valuation of zero to about $60 million in five years. We had 90 staff and we then entered um, accredited education. We started off with diplomas and advanced diplomas, which came with government funding, government accreditation, all of this different stuff. And so the first time we were in that style of environment, came into that space incredibly successfully, trying to reach more people kind of at the student or seed stage of their journey, uh, entered it incredibly successfully. And then the government, long story short, stopped paying anybody that was new to the industry for about six months. So for us, that represented a cash lag of about $6 million that uh, we weren't going to see on time. 
Uh, and then at the end of that cash lag, in about October of 2016, they fundamentally changed the entire accredited space and the industry had three months notice. For us, that meant um, that we were three months away from a monthly loss of $800,000, right? We needed to go from 90 people to 40 people, which is like fucking heart-wrenching and like cutting off your right arm, particularly in a culture like we've got here and like I'm sure you guys do in your own businesses. We needed to redevelop a business model and we weren't coming from a position of huge cash reserves. We're coming from a position of being in a significant amount of debt because of the the cash strain that the, that the government had sort of placed the industry up under up until that point in time. And so, you know, it, it was one of the uh, worst and most challenging periods of our lives and, and particularly challenging periods of the entourage's existence and, and, you know, all of our careers. Fast forward 18 months beyond that point, we were stronger than ever, we were more profitable than ever, we were growing faster than ever, we had the best team, better team than ever, uh, we had matured, we had become wiser, we had become smarter, and, you know, it got pretty hairy there. We, 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 we very, very, very almost did not survive, but in the end we did. We fought through it, and as a result of getting through it, we've got incredibly better, better as a human being, better as a partner, better as a son, better as a leader, better as an entrepreneur, better as a CEO. And you learn a lot through these periods. And so I want to talk about what are the lessons learned and how do you navigate it? If you're an entrepreneur, SME business owner right now, you're working in a business that's that's affected by what's going on, um, I want to talk to the six things you need to be doing. Number one, have a cash flow forecast right? You need to have a cash flow forecast. Some businesses will have a P&L forecast, right? That's cut month by month. So a month on month P&L forecast. I want you to go more severe than that. If you're going to be affected by this period and you think you're going to be sailing close to the wind, you're not going to have a month by month cash flow forecast. You're going to have a week to week cash flow forecast. Now, why do I say this is so important? This isn't, and, and why week to week rather than month to month? The reason you start modeling week to week in periods of challenge is because if you only have a month to month model, at the beginning of the month, if your cash balance is healthy, and at the end of the month, your cash balance is healthy, but in month, your cash balance is actually going to take a serious dip and even go into the negative, you need to know about that. And you wouldn't see that if you're only modeling month to month. And so the time scale doesn't give the required detail to have the necessary visibility that we need as entrepreneurs if you think you're going to be sailing close to the wind. And so we start to go week to week. It's super granular right? But it gives you absolute visibility of what is your cash position going to be at any given moment, right? For me, even in business as usual, the thought of managing a business in the absence of a P&L forecast, in the absence of a cash flow forecast, feels, it makes me nervous just thinking about it, even in business as usual. Why? Because I would feel like I was a pilot, uh, you know, flying a plane, and if you're going through a challenging period, in a storm, without any instruments, blind. That's how it would feel for me. Because I like, what the fuck's going to happen next week? What's going to happen the week? In the absence of the instrument, in the absence of the week-to-week cash flow forecast, you just don't know. You don't have the visibility. And that's incredibly concerning. You might be spending money this week that you need to save from something more important next week, right? And so... Having a week-to-week cash flow model and a cash flow forecast is the is like the first thing. Build it. 
and re- you know, with, reach out to us here at the Entourage. I was just having a discussion with our members this morning about all of the things that we're supporting them with over this period. Um, however you do it, ensure that you end up with a week-to-week cash flow forecast. Cut in the same way as your P&L revenue lines or cash in lines, cost of sales or cost of goods, expenses, and then closing cash balance at the end of each week going forward six to 12 months. And you need to, well, a lot of entrepreneurs, you're not gonna be the one that builds the model and builds the Excel spreadsheet, that's fine. Uh, your bookkeeper or accountant or whoever can do that for you, you do need to be the one putting in the inputs because you do need to be assuming and estimating when the sales are coming in, when the cash is going to drop, and you're probably best placed to know that. So this isn't a, hey, Jack said I need a week-to-week cash flow forecast. Can you send it to me? This is something that you need to get involved in as the entrepreneur. You need to be involved in building it, and then you need to be in it maybe daily, if not daily, at least weekly if you're sailing close to the wind. And, and, and this becomes your best friend. This becomes your number one tool of visibility, right? So number one, have a cash flow forecast. Number two, you guys, you need to be in constant contact with a mentor or an advisor or a coach. This is true of business as usual. It's particularly true in times of crisis and it's particularly true in challenging times. I was talking to my members this morning. In 2016, when, though, when that news came out, Probably for the week or two following the announcement, I was meeting with liquidators. I was meeting with administrators. I was meeting with the people that wind up businesses because it looked like that was going to be the path that we might have needed to go down. And what I didn't fully appreciate at the time, I mean, I sort of understood it, but I didn't fully appreciate it. But a lot of liquidators and administrators almost want to sell you into winding up your company because that's the business that they're in. And so while I knew that would be part of their agenda, I didn't realize the degree to which it influenced the advice they gave. And so I was, you know, at one point I was considering all of our options and that was that was unfortunately one of them at the time. And then by fucking universal timing and universal happening, we had engaged Grant Thornton to help us implement, um, can you just fix up that screen for me, Mariah, please? To help them, to help us implement um, a bookkeeping software. I can't remember what it was called, uh, but it was the worst piece of software on the planet. So if I think of the name, I will tell you the name of it. uh, because you need to not use this accounting software. I can't remember what it was, but we were, um, but we were implementing it and we used Grant Thornton to help us to do that. And so we were meeting with them about this accounting software and they brought this guy, a guy called Saeed, uh, into the one meeting we had one day and they said, we know the announcement that just happened in the industry. Saeed's here. He's part of our corporate advisory team. He's really good with turnaround. We thought you might want to ask him some questions. So I was like, oh, okay, we'll see what this guy has to say. And I, I wasn't overly optimistic about the value that Saeed was going to offer. Um, but Saeed very quickly was able to demonstrate to me that uh, he was very informed around how to manage challenge. He was very informed around how to manage crisis. He was very informed around what we should and shouldn't do. And he said, you absolutely should not put this business into administration. You won't come out of it. It'll be the end of you. The, these are the steps that we need to take. And so at a time when um, we didn't have the money, at a time when we were in a lot of debt, at a time when the business was on its knees and probably the worst week we've ever had in terms of outlook, um, we engaged Saeed as an advisor. 
Uh, and you know, over the next six to twelve months, at an investment probably of north of about one hundred twenty thousand dollars, didn't have the money. Found that um, to help us navigate that period, and 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 if it wasn't for Saeed's involvement, it is very likely that we would have had a very different outcome as a business, right? And so while it was tight while we were in a huge amount of distress, while we were incredibly stressed, while we were incredibly uncertain. That was when I started to cut a check for, you know, in hindsight, a, a, quite an expensive advisor, but it was the best money I have ever spent because, the, guys, business is so fucking challenging. It's hard to navigate by yourself when business is usual. When business is challenging, I will go as far to say, you cannot do this by yourself. Don't try to navigate this by yourself. The financial implications, the team implications, the mental implications, the emotional implications, lean in to an advisor, a coach, a mentor, whether it's with us here at the Entourage or somebody else is, is completely up to you. But this is the time to get the advice you need to make the right decisions and to be supported and to be guided. So number two, lean into a coach, lean into a mentor. Number three, focus on sales and marketing, bring cash through the door, right? I think SMEs in general don't spend enough time and bandwidth on bringing cash in the door, don't spend enough time and bandwidth on marketing in and of itself. That only becomes exponentially true during times of challenge. And so adopt a revenue generation, adopt a cash in mindset right? You are in business development mode. Deploy most of your team into business development mode. Bring cash in. Fourthly, diversify revenue streams, particularly for those of you where your revenue streams are going to dry up or have dried up for as long as this lasts. And this might last, the timeline around this, guys, is so uncertain, but I think it could last as little as two to three weeks and it could last as, as long as three to six months. And so if your revenue streams are drying up, you need to find other revenue streams that you can derive income from to weather the months where your core revenue streams are going to be dried up. And so start to think about that. Fifth, manage unnecessary expenses, right? As business owners, particularly if you're not financially conscious, sometimes you can get a bit lavish and start spending money on things that you don't need to. Firstly, if um, if your existing sales and marketing isn't going to work, we need to uh, improve our existing sales and marketing to find a position and find a strategy that is going to work, right? But stop spending as much money on, if, if core marketing streams aren't going to work, then spend less money there, right? There will be unnecessary expenses. And again, building a cash flow forecast will give you visibility of what these unnecessary expenses are. The other thing I will say here, guys, under managing cash flow is, and I'm not a financial advisor and I'm not an accountant, but if I speak from my personal experience, when we went through some really challenging times in 2016 and 2017, we and our members have always found the ATO to be incredibly supportive and to be incredibly lenient, right? Meaning, one of the things that we did on several occasions was we would call the ATO and again, I'm not suggesting you do this. I'm not giving you financial advice. You need to get your own financial advice and you need to speak to experts about this, but I do want to put it on your radar in principle. 
which is to draw on my own experience. We, we would speak to the ATI, we'd say, look, this is what's going on. You know, the, the vocational education and training sector has just um, been, been pulled out from under us, as you all know all too well, ATO, you've seen it on the newspapers. Uh, therefore, we need a little bit of support. Uh, this tax bill that we need to pay next week or in the next few weeks, we'd like to put it on a payment plan, please. And we needed to do that a fair few times. They never said no. They never said no. And uh, to give you guys some inside information and insight that uh, the ATO probably won't disclose to you, when dealing with SMEs, the ATO have some parameters that they will need you to operate within. Those parameters are this. Generally speaking, they will uh, give you an integrated client account, which is like putting your tax on a payment plan, um, for up to $500,000 over a period of two years. Meaning, if you ask them uh, to put $600,000 of tax on a payment plan, they're going to tell you no, they're going to put you through all of these tests, and they, they won't say to you, no, it's over our threshold. They'll just say no, or maybe, and they'll put you through, t- and you go into a conversation you probably don't want to enter. Um, so you want to do up to 500K over two years. The only thing is, with that 500K, do understand that it, it often includes the interest that will be applicable to the principal over those two years, meaning... If, and we did this and unsuccessfully in this particular instance, we got there in the end because we worked it out. But um, if you want to defer, let's say $450,000 in tax, you want to put on a payment plan over 23 months because you know that 24 months is their threshold. Yeah, they'll go, okay, 450 grand. What's the interest that's going to accrue on that 450 grand over the next two years? over the next 23 months, okay, that means that they're going to be paying off $530,000. I'm using hypothetical numbers. Therefore, they're going to say no, because when you add the interest over the two years, you get over 500 grand, right? And so under 500 grand, including the interest you will pay over the term, under two years, uh, generally speaking, we have found them to be lenient. I also believe, again, I, I don't know this for a fact, and you need to seek your own expert advice. I also believe that given what's going on in the current environment, that they will continue to be lenient. And so um, the, the key here, guys, with your creditors is over-communicate, whether it's the ATO, whether it's your landlord, whoever it might be, what most people do in times of crisis is they retreat and they retract and they go, fuck, people are going to be really angry with me, so I don't want to talk to anybody. That's the opposite of what you should do. Get on the front foot, make the phone call, send the emails, have the conversations, over-communicate. Generally speaking, if you have a plan, generally speaking, if you over-communicate, people can be and institutions can be uh, quite supportive and quite lenient, okay? Uh, So that's number five. And then number six, get creative with your product or service delivery. Meaning, you know, if you're a physio and and some people don't want to come into your physio because they they want to self-isolate or have social distancing or whatever it might be, um, what I would do is this. Can you do digital delivery? Or can you put in place measures for people that are going to come and see you, for those that are concerned, because not everybody will be concerned, but a portion of your customers will be. Can you put in place measures so that those that are concerned, you're able to reassure them that you're taking all the health and precautionary measures possible to help ease their concern so that they feel comfortable coming in. And so we're either digitizing delivery to avoid any contact 
or we're putting in place measures to ease the concerns of those that we do need to or that need to have physical contact with us by virtue of the product or the service that you're offering. But we really need to get creative here, guys, around how we uh, amend and adapt our service or product delivery to ensure that uh, it, it either doesn't have contact or that people are super comfortable with it, right? And so getting creative around health measures and digitizing product or service delivery. The last thing I'll say around the business stuff, guys, is from an economic perspective, um, when the economy rebounds, it will rebound fast. Why? Because this is a health crisis that's led to an economic crisis, but it's not inherently an economic crisis in and of itself. If you go back to 2008, 2009, the global financial crisis, it was a lack of confidence and a lack of credibility on, on, uh, towards the global economy from the global population. And so the return is, is, is slower. What we saw with SARS, what we saw with MERS, what we, what we will see with COVID-19, because these aren't economic crises in and of themselves, uh, what we will see is when the health crisis starts to um, uh, plateau and eventually diminish, the economic recovery will be uh, very quick. Watch what Warren Buffett's been saying on this over the last few days. I couldn't agree more. Uh, the, the, the economic recovery will be quick. And so this is about navigating the months of challenge and navigating the months um, where you are gonna need to be creative to, 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 to uh, you know, survive and ultimately thrive. Uh, and when it comes back, it will come back quickly. So that's the business context. Instagram, I want to know your number one thing you've heard me say so far, your number one aha moment. Facebook, I want to know your number one aha moment as well. Tommy Hyde, good to see you. Tamara Turner, good to see you. Chasey, good to see you. Christina Hopkins, good to see you. Okay, I want to talk to the personal strategies that uh, will most help us navigate this as human beings and as people. Fortunately, guys, we have more options at hand than mass hysteria and fear or bury our head in the sand and continue with blind faith and blind optimism, right? Neither of those two strategies are optimal. I think the solution lies somewhere in the middle, right? We need to assess the level of consciousness that we bring to these challenges as individuals. I'll talk to collective society in a minute. But we need to be aware and mindful of our own consciousness, right? Fortunately, we've got more options than fear or ignore it. Again, con evolving your consciousness and developing your mindset is not about everything's okay, everyone needs to relax, everything is positive, just think good thoughts. That's probably not gonna cut it in the real world, right? That's not consciousness. Consciousness is how do we bring intelligence to the challenges that we will inevitably face throughout our life and throughout our career and throughout our business's journey. That's what consciousness is. Consciousness is how do I live intelligently? Consciousness is how do I take appropriate action without the angst? 
Consciousness is not bury our head in the sand and pretend it's not happening and good prayers will move us through it, right? Consciousness is how do I take the right action in the circumstance without the angst and be a leader to those who are watching. Guys, if you're watching this, you are most likely a leader, whether you're a business owner or not. If you're in my audience, the reason you follow me is because you're a fucking leader. And now more than ever, the world needs leadership. Now more than ever, the world needs people who can remain grounded and remain centered and keep calm and be nourished and be the example to others in the world to also do that. One of my favorite stories ever is a story taught to me by a guy called Tom Cronin, who uh, is one of my core meditation and spiritual teachers. Tom did an Instagram Live last night that I thought was beautiful. Tom's just an incredible human. And he talks about the fact that uh, lampposts don't congregate, right? Lampposts don't congregate. Meaning, as leaders, sometimes we do come together. We come together in workshops and we will continue to do that. We come together in events and we, you know, we come together. And, and that's an amazing experience because you get this big ball of light and you get this big ball of energy and, and, and it feels amazing. But then we all go off and we go into our own lives and we go into our own cities and we go into our own homes and our, our own places of work. And the question is, where is a lamppost best positioned? The answer is, on a dark street corner and each lamppost is positioned far enough away from each other such that the boundary of the light of one of the lampposts reaches the boundary of the light of the next lamppost. And I think that's a beautiful metaphor for how you should view yourselves. It's amazing when we come together. It's amazing the energy that we create. It's amazing the conversations that we have. But that's not why we were created. We were created to shine a light and we were created to light up the fucking world. And so if you're a leader, now's the time. If you're a leader, now is the time to demonstrate it. Demonstrate it within, demonstrate it without, and demonstrate it as an example to others. Let your light shine. Do so from a place of consciousness, not from a place of ignorance or avoidance, from a place of consciousness, meaning bringing right and intelligent action without the angst. In order to do that, you need to be looking after and nourishing yourself. Particularly if you're a business owner, you're a parent, you're, you're somebody with dependence, whether they be commercial and business dependence or whether they be familial dependence, um, there'll be a lot of people to look after over the next few months. And, and we shouldn't understate that. The more full you are, the more you have to give. You can't give something you don't have. So remember to look after and to nourish yourself through this period. Meditate, exercise, have time with loved ones, journal, go for walks, whatever you need to do, paint, play guitar, sing, write poetry, time with kids, time away from kids, whatever it is for you, ensure you are nourishing self, ensure you are filling yourself up so you have so much to give. What we are experiencing now is a lesson in uncertainty. Even travel plans, business plans, 
You know, you might have been getting married in the next month or two. You might have been going to Bali in the next month or two. Sales plans, events, conferences, it's all up in the air and probably to, to many of you to an unprecedented um, degree, right? And so this is a global lesson in uncertainty. I'm smiling because when you find the gift in the lesson, when you find the gift in your journey, um, you can recognize it for what it is, which is a profound invitation to develop the parts of you that are not yet developed. And that brings me to the societal uh, considerations, guys. And so let's talk about it as a society and a culture at large. If you want to understand the macro, if you want to understand global populations, if you want to understand culture, understand the micro. The macro is just a reflection of the micro, right? And if you look at your own personal experience and your own individual life, it is times of your greatest challenge where you grow the most. I believe challenge, we invite challenge into our experience to develop the parts and the components of us that have yet to be developed, but are, we are inviting ourselves to develop, right? The same is true at a macro and a global level. We are inviting several global challenges, whether it's COVID-19, whether it's um, uh, economic uncertainty, whether it's global warming, we are inviting many challenges into our existence. And if we approach them with the right consciousness, then they will serve to help us develop the components and the consciousness in our society that we are yet to develop. I mentioned before, South Korea have been doing the most rigorous testing throughout this period and have, and have really dealt with this crisis as well as you know, any other country in the world, if not better, right? Why was that so? Why were they so good this time around? The reason is that in 2015, they had a crisis and they stuffed it up, right? Much of their current disease control system was forged after a 2015 uh, local outbreak of the Middle East respiratory syndrome, which was MERS, right? And at the time, the Korea Center for Disease Control and Prevention found itself particularly unable and ill-equipped to deal with the demand for tens of thousands of uh, tests. Uh, and as such, it was the largest outbreak um, in South Korea, other than um, Saudi Arabia, uh, it was the largest in South Korea. And they uh, unfortunately and tragically had 38 people pass away uh, and it infected nearly 200 people. And so that was their that was their crisis, and that prompted them to overhaul uh, its uh, disease control measures. It prompted them to overhaul policy, and, and the main one being they wanted to cut through bureaucratic month-long processes to get kits rapidly approved and disseminated during periods of emergency. And so they changed their policy that when there is a crisis and we need to respond quickly, we need a change of policy that says that we can do that and we can cut through months of uh, bureaucratic approvals. They developed um, crisis plans, right? And so when the crisis came along, they were prepared for it. It was due to a challenge that they faced in 2015, which they handled uh, quite poorly enabled them to learn from that. And now we see them in 2020 responding to the crisis and being an example for the rest of the world and how the rest of the world can respond to the crisis. We invite challenges to develop parts of ourselves, whether it's micro or macro, that are yet to be developed. Now, I don't think that 
COVID-19 is going to mean that once COVID-19 washes over and, and you know the world gets back to living as usual and business as usual, that everything's got to be peachy and global government's going to be cooperating and everything's going to be great. I'm not saying that this crisis is going to solve the world's problems. What I am saying is that it's one instance and it's one example it's one invitation. Global warming is another. Increasing economic instability outside of the current crisis is another. Politics is another. War is another. Poverty is These are all invitations. I'm saying that this can be and probably will be one such crisis that enables us to grow our societal consciousness and grow our individual consciousness to start to realize that we are all human beings on the same planet, on the same journey, and we are global citizens of a very global environment and we need to start thinking like it. That's the invitation that is currently being posed to us. And so how do you best influence the societal outcome as an individual? Manage and lead yourself and those around you. Again, guys, the macro is only a reflection of the micro. And so the best thing you could do to change the world is be the example. Elevate your own consciousness. Intelligent action without the angst. Be a leader. Be somebody that's grounded, centered, whole and nourished, regardless of what's going on in your external circumstances. That is the invitation that we have as individuals and that is the invitation that we have as a society and as a culture. This is a crisis. This is an incredibly challenging period. But these are global challenges that are causing us to ask global questions in a way that will ultimately lead us to better global solutions and better global cooperation, which is something that we need. This is a challenge. This is a crisis. Most of all, guys, this is an invitation. And we decide, we determine how we respond to the invitation. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. I'm Jack DeLosa. If you enjoyed listening, make sure you hit subscribe and you'll be the first in line to get every new episode sent directly to your phone. While you're at it, open Instagram and connect with me. My handle is simply at Jack DeLosa, D-E-L-O-S-A. This is where you'll find me every day sharing the secrets of scaling multi-million dollar businesses and giving you a behind the scenes look at what it really takes to build a life that you love. You can also find me on all the usual places, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. Just search Jack DeLosa. Thanks again for listening. And as always, dream out loud. That's a wrap.